Now, will you turn tonight, if you have a copy of God's Word, to the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, it's the ninth chapter, and we're going to read a few verses uh, from the second half of that chapter. Psalms, Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, and Isaiah. Ecclesiastes 9, and this is a wonderful book. Uh, There's so much gospel in this book. And there's a great gospel text here in this portion that we're going to read together. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11, down to the end of the chapter. Let's read God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse number 11, please. Solomon wrote these words. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. For man also knoweth not his time, as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time, when it falleth suddenly upon them. This wisdom have I seen also under the sun, and it seemed great unto me. There was a little city, and few men within it, And there came a great king against it, and besieged it, and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of wise men are heard and quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. And we know that God will bless the reading of his precious and inspired word. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to really speak to hearts tonight. Father, again, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee, O God, for even the simplicity of what we read about in the New Testament whenever believers met together. They sang Thy praise, they offered prayer, they opened the Scriptures. And Father, tonight we thank Thee for the Word of life. And as we sit around this precious book, we pray that we might be very conscious that we're sitting around the Lord's feet. Spirit of God, my teacher be. Show the things of Christ to me. Help us tonight, Lord, as we consider thy word to see the Savior in all of his atoning merit and value. Pray, O God, you will speak into hearts and grant, Lord, that every distraction might be taken away and that there might be free course for the word of God to be applied to our hearts. Father, I pray for the anointing of the Holy Spirit Pray for the uplifting of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for the glory of thy name. 
Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Our text tonight is found in verses 14 and 15 of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. There was a little city and few men within it. And there came a great king against it and besieged it and built great bulwarks against it. Neither was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no man remembered that same poor man. Here in this great text of Scripture, we have a a very vivid account of a small city that is captured and held captive by a great king whose name is not given. But that city is ultimately rescued by a very unlikely anti-hero, a poor but very wise man who himself was a resident found living in that city. And in this great text of Scripture, we have a wonderful picture of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm taking tonight this city to represent this world that we live in. I'm taking the few men that lived within the city to represent the souls of men and women. I'm taking the great king to represent Satan, the god of this world. And then, of course, we're taking the poor, wise man to represent our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, tonight in this world of ours, and in this city that we live in, and even, I believe, to a degree in this very meeting, and even across the airwaves, whether it's the internet or some other avenue where the Word of God goes forth, there is very much a real battle that is going on between the forces of darkness and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a battle that's going on tonight for souls in this day and age. John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, wrote many wonderful books. His testimony, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, is one. And another one, maybe not so well known, is simply entitled The Holy War. And it depicts Diabolos attempting to take away the city of man's soul from the great Emmanuel, the holy war. And in this verse of Scripture tonight, in these two verses in this text, I believe tonight we have another reference to a holy war that goes on and indeed is raging tonight. As we think about the holy war, I want you to notice this text and three very simple things from it. First of all, there's a city. Then there's a siege. And then lastly, there's also a savior. Consider, first of all, the city. Our text opens with the words, there was a little city and few men within it. It could have been any city among many. But I believe tonight, as Solomon wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, as he's thinking about this particular city and writing about it, I believe tonight that Solomon had a real, literal, historical city in view, a real, actual city. Now, as we think about this city, you'll notice initially 
its insignificance. This city is pretty much an insignificant city. Its name is not given. Its locality is not described. Nothing is said about the city by way of wealth or commerce or population. It's simply described as a little city. And that indicates that it's maybe not all that noteworthy or all that well-known. It's insignificant. No name is given to it. Little is known about it. And it is insignificant in the eyes of the world. And just a few people inhabit this little city. And it's amazing to think tonight that in this universe that God has created, we are told that there are somewhere between 200 billion and 2 trillion individual galaxies, of which the Milky Way is one. One out of either 2 billion or somewhere up to 200 billion or 2 trillion galaxies, the Milky Way is one of them. And in the Milky Way galaxy, we are told that there are between 1 and 10 trillion individual planets of which planet Earth is one among billions and billions of others. And then whenever we think of planet Earth and we think of this island that we live on and we think of the northern part of it and the land mass and the population, this is really a very small and insignificant country in the eyes of the world. And then whenever we think of the city that we live in, it's it's not really one of the largest cities in the province. Uh, maybe many would look at Lisburn and think, is it really a city at all? Some people are still debating that until this present day. And then we think about this church of ours in the midst of this city. And it's maybe not the largest church either. And we think tonight exclusively and explicitly about this particular meeting and our numbers are down tonight, and there's not maybe as many here as there would usually be, and numbers are, are relatively small in the grand scheme of things, and there's maybe just a few people gathered into the meeting this evening. And then you think about yourself in the midst of it all. Almost 8 billion people living in this little planet, one among trillions in the Milky Way galaxy, which is a galaxy among trillions more in this great universe, and yet God is interested in planet earth. And God is interested in this nation of ours. And God, I believe, is interested in this church family and all connected with it. And God, I believe, tonight is interested in this very meeting. And God, I believe, tonight is interested in you as an individual maybe unnamed or unknown in the eyes of the world. Maybe nobody knows anything about you, but I tell you tonight, God in heaven knows everything that there is to know about you. The Bible says the very hairs of her head are all numbered. And God knows, the Bible says, our downsetting and our uprising. He knows our going out and our coming in. There's not a word in our lips, but the Lord knows it all together. The Bible says He knows our thoughts afar off. The Scripture says that He knoweth the way that we take, and He knows what is in man. He knows absolutely everything, and in spite of knowing 
what we are and how we think. He's interested in us. Interested in the unknown and the unloved and even the unlovable. You think about the disciples. The Lord didn't go to the great cities of the world or the great parliaments or palaces. He chose ordinary men. You think about people that the Lord met in his road of life, in his life's journey, his three years of ministry. Many of them, their names are not given and they were cast off and cast out by society and given up on. People like the man of the Gadarenes and the woman at the well or the little boy that came one day with his lunch or the blind beggars sitting by the wayside, individuals that really were worthless and not important in the, in the eyes of the world, just like this insignificant city that we read about here in Ecclesiastes 9.14. There was a little city. It's insignificance. But did you notice way as well its inhabitants and a few men within it? There were a few men living in this city. There was life in it. There were people living within the, the city walls, and maybe their names were not known either in this little city, and the inhabitants of it were not all that important in the, in the eyes of the world. But because there was life in the city, and God places great value on even one human life, because he says, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? The Lord's saying that one Human soul is worth more than all of the monetary value in the entire world throughout all ages. And there's a few inhabitants living inside of this city. And maybe an onlooker just sees a bland, insignificant city with a wall and doesn't know that behind that wall there are men and there are women living with needs and desires and dreams and feelings and aspirations and burdens and everything that goes with with living our lives in this earth. And I believe that typifies something of the worth and the value of the soul. God looks down from heaven and sees this universe and all the galaxies and all the stars and all the countless planets and He sees planet earth. And He zones in and He sees Northern Ireland and He sees Lisbon and He sees this church tonight. And he sees a few inhabitants sitting in this church and beyond what man sees, God sees that inside that body that you're living in, there's life and the principle of life. The Bible calls it the soul. God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Your body is just a house or a tent or a tabernacle or a temple. The real principle of life is in the inside, the soul is the thing that makes you unique and makes you an individual. The, the, the personality, the seed of the personality, comprises of the soul, the will, our desires, the intellect, our thought lives. Our emotions are all tied up within the reality of the soul. And the Bible says, way back there in the book of Psalms, that the redemption of the soul is precious. And I wonder if you ever given due consideration to consider the value of your soul in the eyes of Almighty God. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet lose his, his own soul? Your soul is valuable tonight. 
You see, the scientific world will tell us that human beings are just made up of flesh and blood and bones, and if they strip it all back to the, the single cells that make up the human body, they'll say it's just really, we're just made up of what they call protoplasm. But protoplasm doesn't have will or intellect, cannot experience or display love or grief or sorrow or pain or smile or happiness. And, and that indicates to me tonight that we are much more than just, as one modernist said, machines made out of meat. Of little real intrinsic value at all, the value of humanity is found primarily within the soul. Now, the body's of great value. Could you put value on an eyeball or a heart or a liver or a lung or any organ within the body that makes the body work and is vital to life? Of course you couldn't. But the soul is of much more value because the soul is eternal. And it was for the soul and the body that Jesus Christ came into this world to suffer on a cross and bleed and die in order to redeem. The story's told, and maybe you've heard it before, I think Ernie Allen put it into a little gospel tract many years ago, and that's where I first read it, about a man from this island home that we live on during the, the time of the great potato famine. As he saw the things were turning bad, he sold up his farm, he sold up his home, he sold up his head of cattle, and to transport all of his material wealth across the Atlantic Ocean to set up home in America, he went and purchased a large diamond. And all of the things that had been handed down to him, his inheritance and everything that he had lived for and worked for and accumulated, was now comprised within that diamond so he could translate and transport all of his wealth across the Atlantic Ocean, sell that diamond in New York City or some other place, and set up home somewhere in the new country. But traveling across the Atlantic on ship, he reached into his pocket as a young deckhand was scrubbing the deck. And it was a beautiful summer's day, and there was hardly a cloud in the sky, and the, 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 the ocean was like, like a sheet of glass. And this, this wealthy farmer reached into his pocket and lifted out this diamond and held it up between his eye and the sun and turned it around, and it spread rays of light in all directions. And this little boy was watching him wondering, is that a real diamond? And the man took his diamond and to try to get a little bit of attention for himself and I suppose show a little bit of pride about his prosperity, he took the diamond and threw it up into the air and caught it in his hand and smiled at the, the people that were surrounding him and put it back in his pocket. And the little boy went up and said, sir, is that a real diamond? And the man told him the story. He says, yes, son, it is. I've sold everything that I have and it's comprised now in this diamond. I'm transporting my wealth across to America. I'm going to sell it and set up home and buy a farm and get wealthy. And the little boy said, Sir, you're a very foolish man, showing it to everybody around you and handling it in such a trifling manner and throwing it up in the air like that. And the, the proud old farmer put his hand back into his pocket and smiled at the boy and threw it up high into the air. And just as he was about to catch it, it bounced off one of his fingers and landed and the deck of the ship and rolled across the deck and through a little porthole and the side of the ship down into the deep blue waters of the Atlantic Ocean. And now the little boy smiled and laughed at him and says, Sir, I'm richer than you are now. 
And you think, well, that's just a silly story of a foolish man that didn't really realize perhaps how foolish he was being, gambling and trifling with such a valuable, a valuable jewel. But I want to tell you tonight, if you're not a Christian and you're traveling in this world in the journey of life, that that ship represents your life and that diamond represents your soul and, and the ocean represents God's eternity. And some of you tonight are not yet converted and you're not yet saved and you've never given your heart and life to Jesus Christ and you're in awful danger tonight if you trifle with your soul of being lost for all eternity. Think about this city and its insignificance and its inhabitants and we thought as well about its importance. But what as well about its impotence or its inability? The occupants of this city, now that the city is under siege, are entirely powerless to save themselves. A great king has come against the city with myriads of armies and they've set their bulwarks outside of the city and they're soon going to invade the city and those few insignificant inhabitants are impotent with regards to saving themselves. And so it is with mankind in this earth. Man is not able to save himself any which way. Our world seems to have put their lives into the hands of men that maybe are wise in the eyes of the world, but are not able to save humanity from the road that it's on. Do you not realize tonight, friends, that there's been an awful turning away from God and a moral landslide? And the further we get away from the Word of God and the further we get away from the cross and the further we get away from the gospel, the more speed we seem to gather for destruction. And even people tonight that are not Christians by profession even seem somehow to acknowledge that we are living in days where it seems that there is little, if any, light at the end of the tunnel. Especially older people that can look back to a time whenever neighbors looked out for each other and the man's word was as bond and neighbors seemed to help each other and people worked for a living, tried their best and society had a, a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose and a sense of oneness and unity. But all of those things now are going. And it seems that good is now called evil and evil is called good and and family values, and social values, and moral values, and of course spiritual values most of all, lie fallen in the street. The city. Notice also the siege. The second part of verse 14 says, There came a great king against the little city, and besieged it, and built great bulwarks against it. Now, this king's name is not given. We're not told what nation he came from or what his background was. We're simply told that in contrast to the little city, this king was a great king. Great, perhaps, in reputation, great in wealth, great in prosperity, great in ability. And in juxtaposition to the little city, this man is different. He's a great man. But he's greedy and he wants this little city for his own. And so he, he comes in like a flood and he besieges this city. Maybe shuts off their water supply and shuts off their food supply and 
Bells, great bulwarks outside of the city, so nobody is able to escape and nobody is able to come from outside and, and rescue this city. And of course, this great king typifies, I believe, the devil. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that Satan is the god of this world. He's like a great king. He's called the prince of devils and the prince of the power of the air and the prince of this world. And, and the apostle John is careful to remind us that the whole world lieth, as it were, lieth in the hands of the evil one. And it seems tonight that the devil has really besieged this world of ours and brought multitudes within it into bondage. You'll notice here the antagonism of the king. It says there that there came a great king against it. He wasn't for the city. He wasn't coming in to bring relief or lend a helping hand or see if there's anything that he can do to, to help them and prosper them or promote them. No, this king is against this little city. The great king is against the little city. He was volatile. He was against it. And you know tonight, Satan is volatile. No, Satan isn't merely a, a, an ideology or a concept, or a construct. The Word of God tonight would tell us that Satan is a real entity, a real personality, with great power, and great authority, and great ability, and great wisdom, and great intelligence, with plans and purposes against this world that we're living in. And the Word of God makes it clear that we wrestle against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this age and against spiritual wickedness in high places. And the Bible says that the devil is a liar from the beginning and the father of liars. The Bible says he is a thief. The Lord Jesus Christ said that he is a murderer. The Bible calls him a deceiver. The Bible calls him an accuser. There's two words in the book of Revelation that describe him as the destroyer, Apollyon, and Abaddon. And the, the reality is that Peter says, as a roaring lion, he walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Satan is volatile. And Satan as well is also violent. John 10 says, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And in the gospel according to St. Mark in chapter 9 and verse number 17, one of the great multitude that was listening to the Savior came and said to him, Master, I have brought unto thee my son which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I speak to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. And this young lad was possessed with a demon, and the demon handled him violently. And the devil tonight is certainly 
volatile and the devil tonight is violent. He destroys lives, you know. And he destroys homes and he destroys families and he destroys churches and he destroys cities and he destroys entire nations and he turns people against one another. And we are living in a world tonight that is very violent. You think even about abortion, how violent and how volatile that terrible crime is against humanity. I know tonight that we sanitize it and we we paint it up and we almost make it sound humane. But that little child growing within the confines and warmth and safety and nutrition of its mother's womb is literally pulled apart limb from limb, ripped asunder. And I just think it highlights how violent the devil is. Satan is against this city that we read about. Satan is against many things. He's opposed to the truth. He always either tries to deny the truth or distort the truth, or if he can't do that, he will certainly dilute the truth. He's against truth. He's against righteousness. He's against God and against His Son, Jesus Christ. Satan tonight is against the gospel. He's against the church. Satan tonight is against morality. Satan tonight is against you as a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, he's against you as well. He's against gospel missions and gospel meetings and gospel outreach and gospel services. And he's against your salvation tonight Because in Matthew 13, whenever the Lord told the parable about the sower and the seed that fell by the way seed and the the fowls of the air immediately came and snatched away that seed, the Lord, whenever he explained that parable, said that that's like the devil who comes away and snatches the seed of God's Word out of their hearts lest they should believe. He has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine. He's against the gospel. And he's against you coming to Christ and against you living a righteous life and against you one day getting to heaven. The antagonism of the king. Notice as well the assault of the king. It says, there came a great king against the city and besieged it. That is to say, he brought the city into absolute bondage and captivity. We see that happening in different parts of the world. Whenever there's a war on, oftentimes maybe a city is besieged and the borders are guarded and exports and imports are all stopped and food supplies are cut off and fuel supplies are cut off and electric supplies are cut off. And this is what is happening in this little city. It's now been besieged. It's, it's been brought into bondage and the little city, sadly, is unable to free itself and there's nothing that brings a person into bondage the way Satan and the way sin does. The book of Proverbs says that the wicked shall be holden with the cords of his own sins. The Lord Jesus said that that he that committeth sin is the servant of sin. And many people cannot break free if they try. And, And even worse than that, there are many that have no desire at all to break free And it's the bondage of the will. The will of man is bound 
in and of itself and biased towards self and towards sin. And Satan, of course, promises great freedom, but his so-called freedom always brings bondage and captivity. I was reading just last night about a famous actor who died recently. And he talked about all of the things that he felt would fill, he says, this hole in his heart, this hole in his life. None of them worked. Alcohol, drugs, success, money, relationships, fame, left them all empty, hollow and disenfranchised with life. You see, friends, tonight's sin brings captivity. There's a little boy in the summer months, my mom, and I'm sure you have done it as well, used to put a little jam jar outside with maybe some jam and some water in it to catch the wasps. And of course, they get the scent of it and the bees as well, and they enjoy eating the jam, and then whenever they try to fly away, they find that they're stuck and they can't break free, and and they die there, and that's a lot like sin, isn't it? It looks attractive, and everybody else is doing it. But just try to break free and live for God, and you'll realize how bound and how held captive you, you really are. And so often the things that this world of ours thinks will set us free are the things that bring bondage, and the things that the world thinks will bind them are oftentimes the things that set them free. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Notice as well, not just the antagonism of the king and the assault of the king, but the, the arsenal of the king. It says, He set great bulwarks against it. And the word bulwark there really means strongholds against this city. And the Scripture speaks, doesn't it, in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, about the strongholds of the devil. And if you give the devil tonight a foothold, that foothold can so easily become a stronghold in your life. It might just be a little door that's opened up in your life or in your soul, and, and the devil gets the thin edge of the wedge in, and it seems very innocent. And that wedge begins to get pushed in a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper and the door to your soul opens wider and wider and wider. And then the seeds of sin take root in your heart and before you know it, there's strongholds in your life that you cannot break free from. It might be fear, it might be covetousness or pride or bitterness or jealousy or lust or a thousand other things. The arsenal of the king, the strongholds of the devil... And the devil in this world of ours has got many, many strongholds. It might be the stronghold of vice, godless lifestyle. It might be the stronghold of fear. The fear of man bringeth a snare. It might be the stronghold of hypocrisy. What a stronghold that is. Whenever you're living outwardly a certain way and pretending to be something and maybe aspiring to be that, but inside you're you're entirely different, and the world looks on and sees the strongholds of religious apostasy, keeping people in bondage to their sin. Might be the stronghold as well of indifference. That's something that Jeremiah spoke about in Lamentations. It's reference, I believe, to the cross. Is it nothing to you, 
all ye that pass by, come and see if there be any sorrow like my sorrow which is done unto me. And, and you know one thing I believe that's destroying more souls than anything else? It's spiritual indifference in the church and outside of the church as well. So you've got a city, you've got a siege, but praise God, you've also in this verse, this text, got a, a Savior. Verse number 15. What a wonderful story this is. It says in verse 15, Now, or but there was found in that city a, a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered that city. This man is unnamed and unknown. And he's poor. Maybe poor financially, maybe poor as far as reputation and social standing is concerned. But this is the anti-hero that is going to deliver this city from the assault and the attack and the bondage of this great king that has stood against the city. You'll notice that it speaks there of the finding of the Savior. There was found in it a poor, wise man. And maybe people within the city were looking around saying, saying well, is there any social worker? Is there any military general? Is there anybody with fighting experience? Is there any politician or leader or strategist in the city? Some great individual we can find that is able to deliver us but they only were able to find this poor but very wise man. And I believe tonight he typifies our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think we see here his election. He was found. And away back there in the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 42, it says concerning our Lord, Behold, my servant, mine, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And this is the Savior that's coming now to set men free. And he's the one tonight chosen of God the Father to be the Savior of the world. I see not only his election, but I see his nature. There was found in that city a poor, wise man. Jesus Christ was God. And we go to great lengths to defend his deity, and rightly so, but he was also man. He was God, manifest in the flesh. A man like you and I, with the exception that he never sinned. He was born without sin and lived a sinless life. But at the same time, his humanity, his body, and his soul were real and true a true human body and a true human soul. He could feel pain. He knew what it was to be hungry and tired and thirsty. He knew what it was to be weary. He knew what it was to have desires. He knew what it was to experience human gladness and human sorrow. He was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. And you see as well, not only his election and his nature, but also his location. He was found in that city right in the very heart of it. This city that is bound and fettered and, and has been shut off and there's bulwarks outside the city. And in this world of ours, Jesus Christ was found, living as a man amongst men. What a wonderful Savior. Christ Jesus came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. Ephesians 4, 9 says, He descended into the lower parts of the earth 
And there's all sorts of ideas about what that verse means in Ephesians 4 and 9. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. I just take it to mean that he sat with the lowest in society. The demoniacs and the chief of sinners and the prostitutes and the adulterers and the lepers and the people that are cast off by society. That's what the religious establishment said against him. This man sits with sinners. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. A good number of years ago, we had a drain at the back of the house uh, up on the north coast there, and it was blocked. And I was given the task of going out and unblocking this drain just below the kitchen sink. I remember putting my hand down into the water a few inches and touching something quite solid. And as soon as I unsettled it, this reek, this stench came out of the drain. I was almost gagging. I remember lifting clods and clods of fermented breadcrumbs and all of the rubbish that had for years and years and years before we ever got there and after that had gone down the sink and had blocked this, blocked this drain and it was just putrid, putrefying filth. And we think of this world of ours with all of its sin and the sinless, spotless Lamb of God descended into the very lower parts of the earth. Because he realized that in this world of ours, there's something of value, and that's your soul tonight. And he went to a cross and suffered and bled and died so that our sins could be forgiven. Notice his description. It describes him as being a poor man. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse number 9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. He had no place to lay his head. Whenever they took him to the cross, the Roman soldiers gambled for the only piece of property that he had in the entire world, and that was his, that was his robe. He made himself of no reputation. And on the cross, he became poor. And that he suffered and bled and died. He's described as being a poor man, but he's also described as being a wise man. We might say the all-knowing man, the omniscient man who knows all things. Peter said, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love Thee. The Word of God says that in Him are hidden the treasures of, of wisdom and knowledge. The all-knowing, wise Son of God. And friend, tonight He knows all about you as an individual. And the wisdom of God drew up this great plan of salvation, whereby the Son of God would redeem a people unto Himself. Notice not only the finding of the Savior, but notice the freedom the Savior brings. It says, this poor wise man, by his, his wisdom, delivered that city. He set the great city free. He emancipated the city. He saved the city. And he broke the power of this great king. Isn't this a lovely picture of the gospel tonight? For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Charles Wesley said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, 
Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I awoke in the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Can I ask you tonight, are you really free? Have you been delivered from sin and guilt and fear and a sense of lostness? The Son of God is able to to set you free. But notice lastly, one tragic thing about this Savior. It says at the end of verse number 15, yet no man remembered that poor wise man. Herein lies the great tragedy in our text. You would have thought that this poor wise man who by his wisdom delivered the city would be exalted and would be lifted up and would be honored and would be loved and worshipped and crowned as their king perhaps and people would bow their knee in adoration and in thankfulness. But no, the scripture says nobody even remembered that poor wise man. The Scripture says, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. They just carried on as if he had done absolutely nothing. They just went on with their lives. And I'm afraid tonight that some of you will leave this meeting as if the Son of God is nothing and has done nothing. And you'll maybe forget absolutely everything that's been said. And you'll go on your way and go to a lost eternity. Whenever the Lord spoke about the Lord's table, He says, this do in remembrance of me. You know, one of the greatest rescue missions that was ever undertaken was entitled Operation Thunderbolt in Uganda, 1976, at Entebbe Airport. Idi Amin had arranged for a plane, a passenger flight to be hijacked. And some 250 people or more that were on that flight were all taken hostage. And then all of the non-Jewish hostages were set free, but about 106 Jewish men and women and young people were held captive. And so the Jewish authorities wondered, what shall we do? And they They sent in a rescue mission. It was one of the most intricate and detailed rescue missions of all time. And they were able to rescue all but two individuals. Operation Thunderbolt. Friend, tonight the greatest rescue mission that was ever undertaken was undertaken by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Came into this world and went to a cross to set you free to redeem you, to deliver you from the wrath to come, and to bring you into newness of life. May God bless you tonight. And if you're not a Christian, will you please consider your soul? Think about the Savior. Don't forget Him, but call upon Him tonight and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, and as your Master.